You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. The desire for unity is a universal longing among human beings. People have tried to achieve unity through many means, and you can see this the world over across cultures. This is, this is true for every people group on the globe. There are different means that people have used to achieve unity. Think about it. Unity has been pursued through political means, hasn't it? Think about it. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. The original motto of the United States of America. One nation, one culture, the motto of the Republic of Armenia. One for all, all for one, the motto of Switzerland and the Three Musketeers. (laughs) Unity is pursued by political means. Unity has been pursued by educational means. If we all just, just get higher learning, then we'll all become more reasonable citizens and we'll be able to get on the same page, right? Both in one is the motto of our own Georgetown University here in DC. Progress in harmony is the motto of the Institute Technology Bandung in Indonesia. Wisdom, peace, brotherhood is the motto of La Universidad de las Americas in Mexico. Unity is pursued by educational means. We've seen Unity pursued by musical means. Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder wanted to see unity, so they sang, Ebony and Ivory. Y'all know the song, right? Live together in perfect harmony, right? Yeah, Bob Marley issued his call to unity when he sang, One love, come on. One heart, let's get together and feel all right. Yes, yes, unity, Bob Marley. Michael Jackson, of course, wanted to see people get together for all his faults and evil and all the things that have happened with MJ. We got his call for unity when he said, if you think about being my brother, it don't matter if you're black or white, right? Unity has been pursued by musical means. And we have seen the, the attempt to pursue unity through social networking. Some geniuses in Silicon Valley thought, let's get all of humanity to vent all that they are on the internet. It will be awesome. We're gonna connect them. And we have seen that go down in a pile of flames, haven't we? Facebooking and Twittering and Instagramming. I like Instagram because it's less talking. That ends up, you know, show a picture. You smile, maybe we can get together on that, right? Every culture in every place on the globe has this gut level longing and desire for unity. But despite our deep desire for unity, it often feels like wishful thinking, doesn't it? We all have the longing to be connected with other people, but doesn't it just seem like it's just, this is just wishful thinking. It's never gonna happen. And this is particularly the case when when we think about unity in the church. It's particularly the case when we think about the unity of the church. Christian people know that we're supposed to live in unity. We know that God wants us to live in unity. He wants us to be united, but we're not exactly sure how to think about it or how to do it. And in my experience, I've seen 
many Christians land in one of two places when it comes to how they think about unity in the church. They either have a cynicism that leads into defeat. It gives into defeat, a cynicism that gives into defeat or a sentimentalism that gives into deceit. Say that again. Either many Christians wind up in this cynicism that that it gives into defeat. It's never going to happen. No chance. Might as well not even try. It's not worth the sweat or a sentimentalism that gives into deceit, meaning it's all good. Believe whatever you want to believe, whatever we need to do to be more relatable to the culture. Let's just smooth the rough edges off of our faith and make it more palatable. But here's the thing in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul shows us that we don't have to fall off the horse to either of these two sides. We don't have to give in to cynicism and we don't have to give in to sentimentalism. There is clear direction from God's word about how we are to engage our lives and our relationships and our faith in such a way that it leads to unity, that it leads to harmony in the church. We have a better way this morning. And we're going to look at the subject of church unity this morning in our text through two points. The virtues that sustain it and the truths that explain it. Okay, the virtues that sustain it and the truths that explain it. If you want to know what to do in order to participate in bringing greater unity in the church. And if you if you want to know how it is that Christians are to uniquely ground their vision of the pursuit of unity, it's in our text for this morning. So let's look at our first point, the virtues that sustain it. And if you want to know where I'm getting this from, look at the first three verses of the text. This is where we're getting this from, the virtues that sustain unity. Now, here's the deal. The first three chapters of Ephesians They laid their emphasis on the way that God sees us in Christ. In chapters four through six, the Apostle Paul describes how people should see Christ in us. Okay, so there are the big, glorious truths of the gospel of who God is, what God has done that we get in chapters one through three. All the truth, all the all the goodness we could ever hope for is loaded up on us. And it's after these truths are firmly established, then Paul goes on to say, now this is what you must do. This is how this should take shape in your life. And what we have to see is this. Even if you have experienced an abusive use of do this and do that in the history of the church or your experience of the church, even if you've heard people who have who have gone into legalism or moralism, Don't let that make you shy away from following the commands of Scripture. What we have to always remember is this. We are loaded up with grace, but that grace has feet. It gets moving. It gets walking. We we engage grace in such a way that it empowers a new way of living. Why should I do this or that? Not because God's going to get you. Not because God's going God's to wreck you if you don't do it. No, as a Christian, you, you realize that everything that we do comes from the immense love and gratitude that we have because of what God has done for us in Jesus. Because of what God has accomplished in the gospel. So don't shy away from the responsibilities, but also don't miss the, the connection between the responsibilities and the redemption. 
The redemption drives you somewhere. It compels you to go somewhere. The love of Christ constrains us to act differently. Because if we don't, if we don't take seriously the imperatives, the call, the, the duties of the faith, then here's the deal. You will only live the life of faith when it's convenient to do so in the places where it is safe to do so and with the people who make it easy to do so. Your, your faith will have no teeth. It will have no, no grit to it. It will have no endurance or strength to it. So, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. As he turns to this new section of the letter, he drives in on the kind of life that we must live because of the gospel. Because of the gospel truth. And we should notice, y'all, listen, at the top of the apostles list, at the very beginning of him moving out of the big glorious truths into how those truths take shape in your action, at the top of the list is unity. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that instructive? The first thing that the apostle Paul wants to teach the church in Ephesus is that their unity matters. That it's important that it, it, it serves a function that is way beyond what we ever thought. It's really important to God. And the unfortunate thing is today it's become unimportant to us. In many ways, it, it kind of feels like, yeah, because I see it as impossible, I'm just going to forget about it. Right. I'm not even going to try. But it's important. It's at the top of the list here. It's at the top of the list. In fact, this text is one of two classic texts on unity. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six and the gospel of John chapter 17 are the classic texts on unity in the church. It's important before Jesus goes to the cross. He lays it out as one of his final words to his disciples as he prays in front of them. Think about that. He wanted to leave this on us and with us as something we take seriously. And notice the language that Paul uses. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now think about it. He just described this calling that, that the people of God have received. The blessings and the graciousness of this call. He's described the wondrous love of this call. It's a call, if we, as we walk through the text, if you haven't been with us, this is essentially how it works. The call of God in Jesus Christ, the call into his family, the call into rescue is a call out of death, out of spiritual bondage, out of judgment, out of God's wrath, out of spiritual separation, out of social alienation, out of hopelessness. It's an out of call and it's an into call. It's a call into union with Christ, into every spiritual blessing, into love, into adoption, into spiritual freedom, into lavish grace, into glorious hope, into resurrection power, into the family of God, into peace and intimacy, into reconciliation, into membership, and into unity with fellow brothers and sisters. It's a call out and a call in. And this call, there is a particular way that, that we are to live that, that is worthy of that call. There, there are such high privileges that we, that we have that come with this call. When God sets his love on you, when God does his amazing work in your life, there is a responsibility that you now bear because of receiving such a wonderful love, because of being cared for so well by God. 
Now, after loading us up with this life-giving truth, he now, he now gives us life-living instruction, beginning with unity. How are we to live a life that's worthy of the calling? What does that look like? That's what the next part of the text teaches us. What does it look like to live a life that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Verses two through three. To do so with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What Paul gives here are virtues that sustain our unity. And we need to slow down here because you know what? A lot of times as your pastor, one of the constant things that I get from you is that you feel like you're lacking information to live the life that you've been called to. But I'll bet none of this is new to you, is it? You knew all this. Most of you knew all this. You've known this since you were itty bitty. So what we end up seeing is that information is not our problem. Practice is is the challenge for us, right? How do we get these practiced into our lives? How do I practice the truths that I know? I once had a professor uh, in seminary who said, if we lived 10% of what we know, the world would be drastically different. That always left a mark with me. That was from the great Howard Hendricks. He was a master practitioner of just getting that truth to live in your life. And he said, think about living 10% of what you already know, Christian. And that that was stunning because what that tells me is that we got to slow down and we got to begin to to meditate and mull over these things. We all know about humility, right? It's beautiful. But before we get into the list, what is virtue? What is virtue? I like the way that uh, that one scholar and churchman put it. N.T. Wright. He said this. Virtue is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't come naturally. And then on the thousand and first time when it really matters, they find that they do what's required automatically. Virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices become second nature. Isn't that helpful? It's a thousand small decisions that you make in the easy mundane stuff, a thousand small decisions that you make to practice the virtues and to reject the vices. And then the longer you do this, the more practice you are at this and the moments where it really counts, that will become second nature. It's not natural, but it's, it's, it's after practice. You remember the first time you drove a car, how awkward that felt? Like, oh, I'm driving. I'm driving. Oh, my God. And your parents are going, oh, my God. Just losing it, right? But now you jump in a car. You don't even think about it. Some days you probably wind up going from work to home and you don't remember the trip in between. You're just so practiced at it. You're just flipping the turn signal on. I know some of y'all, y'all got the gangster lean back here like this. That's what Erwin used to do that when he had an afro. He used to be way back here like this. In the Cadillac. (laughs) But it becomes second nature, right? That's the practice. I was reminded of this. There was this habit that I picked up because God struck me. I was in the grocery store one time and there was this sweet older woman 
who um, she was going through the line and she had things, but she had coupons that she was trying to get cashed in to be able to, to cover her food. And it was taking a really long time. And, and she, I could tell she was feeling like the pressure and I was watching the cashier and the cashier, all of these people were backing up in line. Then all of a sudden you started hearing and people started leaving this line to go to another line. And I was actually in a rush and I had the thought that struck me. Russ Whitfield, you're important, but not that important. You're not so important that you can devalue another person right in front of you because of your schedule. You're not so important that you reserve the right to belittle and demean and, and poorly treat people around you because you're not getting your way. You're important, but not that important. Now here's the kicker. It probably took about 25 minutes. And I'm like, I'm not that important. I'm not that important. And at this point I had committed it like, like 10, 15 minutes. I was the only one in the line behind, behind this woman. And I stood, there, I stood there and I just, tried to be, I just tried to be in the spirit. And just as I came up to the, to the, it was about to be my turn, the woman turned around and she was like, thank you. And I was like, I'm not that important. And then one of our members came through the door and said, Pastor Russ. I was like, And the cashier did this. You're a pastor? And I was like, sad to say I am. And I could tell in her head, the rules were being rewritten because she had assumptions about the way that people were in the church. And she had experiences probably with people in the church. Who, and that, I'm telling you, that was all of grace. And all I could do in that moment as she was like, that, thank you. And then she started saying nice things to me. And all, all I could say was, look at God. Look at God. Look at what the Lord is able to do with a selfish sum of a gun like me. It blessed me. And now that's the practice that I do every time I'm in the grocery store line. That's a little thing. It's just a little thing. How simple it is to wait in the doggone line with your groceries in a day and age where we don't have to go out and farm it and break a sweat for it. Someone did that already. It's packaged in nice packages. You got cold drinks out the refrigerator. You can actually get milk without having to milk a cow. Isn't this amazing? It's an opportunity to a thousand times when you're in that grocery store line to practice virtue. It has, it has struck me. These, as N.T. Wright says, the thousand small decisions to make wise and courageous choices that will eventually become second nature, we have to consider what are those wise and courageous choices? Here we get the list. Practicing humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Think about humility and loneliness. You know what this is? Having a humble opinion of oneself, a modest Self-estimate, not overly impressed with yourself or your own sense of importance. That's what humility is. I know that there's a phrase that people often say it's humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. 
And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, but sometimes it is thinking less of yourself because you think you're all that. And everyone has told you that you're all that. And you started to believe your own press clippings. And we need to have a modest, honest self-assessment. Who am I? And it's very countercultural then and now. Because for the, for the, in the Greco-Roman world, humility was not a virtue. It was, it was in the writings. It was, it was a, the first thing that you were not supposed to admire. Lowliness. It was anytime the word, their word for humility was used, it was spoken of negatively. It, it was not something to emulate or become. And it's not until the New Testament that you get a new word for humility. And that new word is built upon the life of Jesus Christ. Humility is one of the gifts that the church gave to the world. A, a vision of practicing the regard of the other above your own self. The, the, the life that looks like the life of Jesus. Because Christians from early days knew that it was sacrificial humility that rescued their lives. And now it was their calling and opportunity and privilege to model that humility in the world for the life of the world. It's a beautiful thing now to see it. But you know what? Here's the deal. Today, humility is somewhat valued, but it's really false humility that's valued. Because it's like this. When someone comes up and says, oh, you're so amazing. You're like, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Tell me more. Tell me more. Right. We like false humility. But at the end of the day, this is not this is not what the scriptures are talking about. False humility is very stylish today. But let me say something about this. When someone encourages you, receive the encouragement and all the while say, look at God. Look at what the Lord is able to do in my life. That is amazing. It's his grace to me. Receive the encouragement. Otherwise, it's false humility. We don't want to practice false humility. Aw, shucks. Right? No. That's not the picture that we're given. But here's the deal. We have to think about how we're placed in our cultural context. And in our cultural context, there, there's been an effort to, to correct historic undervaluing of marginalized people. Our culture has sought the remedy in fostering pride. But pride is not the way to correct the historic undervaluing of certain people. To get them to say, like, you're awesome, you're up, because then guess what? They, they fall off the horse on the other side. Pride is not the way to correct the historic devaluing of people. We don't want to invest pride. We want to invest a, a, an honest assessment of, no, you know what? What has been missing is you have not been valued according to the true value that you have as an image bearer. That doesn't make you... Error proof or bulletproof because here's the deal. And I got to say this because we're trying to be a cross-cultural community. We've gotten into a, a moment where marginalized people can do no wrong and no one's allowed to correct someone who belongs to a, mar a historically marginalized group. But that's not the way it's supposed to be in God's church, because when all of us are are thinking about ourselves with a the right kind of sobriety, I am deeply valuable and deeply loved. But also I'm also deeply flawed. I have blind spots. I have weaknesses. And I need others to help me to be the best person that I can be. The most faithful person I could be. The most diligent worker I could be. To help me to bring out the best of my gifts and to check the worst in me. 
That's when we're starting to operate in humility. And as Pastor Joe mentioned earlier in the service, it's pride that lurks behind all discord. If you scratch any discord or disunity, you will find pride behind it. And if we see any lack of real unity in our in our midst, you can you can bet your bottom dollar that at its source is pride, the pride of life. And our greatest secret of unity is humility. And it's not difficult to prove this in experience, is it? Think about it. Think about the the people that you are immediately and instinctively prone to like and the people you find it easy to get along with. They're the people who give you the respect that you think you deserve. The people that treat you like you're valuable. Those are the people that you're most prone to bond with and the people you're most prone to fight with are people you think that are all that and they treat you like trash. You see, the vision here is that everyone walking in humility, having a sober self-estimate and considering the other as important and putting their needs and their, their, their situation ahead of my own. When everyone's doing that, it fosters something very beautiful in the church and it's compelling and it bears witness to what God is about in the gospel. Instead of maneuvering for the respect of others, which is pride. We need to practice giving respect to them, recognizing their intrinsic God-given worth, which is humility. And we'll be promoting harmony in God's new society. This is, this is the virtue of humility to practice. Think about the small ways that you can practice humility. All the times, let me just give you a little tag to explore. In all the places where there are requests made of you. And your instinct is to say, no, I got, I, I got stuff to do. I'm, I'm more important right now. What I want is more important than what you want. What I need is more important than what you need. Those are the opportunities to make a thousand small decisions to say, you know what? I'll do that. Yeah, I got you. Just, just think about the, 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 the way in which you make those small decisions every day. When you have an opportunity to do good and it's going to take some time and it's going to cost you a little bit, you actually make that small decision. When it comes to your kids, you make the small decision. And parents, there are many ways in which you're practicing this. But what I want to challenge you to is to consider your attitude when you do the things that you have to do to keep these little jokers alive, right? You have to keep them alive. I mean, you know, you got to feed them. But instead of saying, take these Cheerios. And get out of my face, right? Oh, maybe I'm projecting out here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> when you get the thousandth question of the day, you know, for a period of my life, I thought my name changed to Dad, can I? Dad, can I go out there? Dad, can I do this? Dad, can I have this? It's like, if they ask me one more question, I'm going to explode. But the opportunity, the small opportunity, God's training you to learn what his love is really like and how he receives your requests and he acts on your behalf constantly. That's, that's the kind of humility that we want to pray for in our lives. When you have arguments in your marriage and both of you want to be right, what if both of you instead made the small decision to say, you know what? I know who I am. And it's quite possible that as committed as I am to this and as much as I think I'm right right now, maybe I am wrong. Let me listen and receive it. 
and let me work toward unity. That's not a false unity that's built on untruths, but a deep abiding unity that's built on truer truths. Truth with a capital T, which is Jesus died for your sins. He raised from the dead and now he has poured out his spirit in your life to empower you to live the life. To say no to ungodliness and worldly desire so that you can say yes to others. So a practical way to do this, say no to you and yes to them a little bit more this week. And practice saying no to me, yes to them a little bit more in your relationships. And see the lessons of love and humility that you will learn in that. Okay, just a little practical one. Gentleness. This is the next one on the list. Gentleness here is not weakness. It's power under control. Power under control. It's the same word that was used for animals, beasts of burden that were contained. Their power was constrained and it was channeled appropriately. That's the gentleness. You know what we celebrate in our culture? Telling someone like it is. Lighting them on fire. Blasting them. Don't nobody take advantage of me. I'm going to put them in their place. That is not a virtue in the church. And if we practice that in human interactions, if we practice that on social media, if we practice putting people on blast all the time, it will misform us and it will compromise our unity. But when you have a gentleness, when you have a way of just constraining the power that you have, you might not feel very powerful right now. But I'm going to tell you something. If there's anything that I've learned in the last season of life, it's that words are powerful. What you say to people, what you accuse people of, what you assume about people, the words you speak to other people have power. There are words that people have have said to me that still stick with me and nag me in the worst kind of way. And there are words that people have said to me that have shaped me and uplifted me in the most beautiful kinds of ways. The first way to begin to see your power under constraint and under control to to walk in gentleness. Think about your words. Are you prone to encouragement or to immediately be the antithesis. You always got to be the, the, the devil's advocate. And a lot of times when you're playing the devil's advocate, you're being the devil's advocate. You hear me? You're working to sow discord. But what if we were practicing the more beautiful art of gentleness and we were able to walk gently with others because we know we need that same gentleness, that same grace that this person needs right now. I'm going to need it tomorrow. And and in the next five minutes, I'm going to need what I am called to give. So let me give it freely that I might receive it freely. We are always investing something into the community. Either it's encouragement that brings unity. It's power under constraint in the form of our words and our actions or discord. Sowing discord, mumbling. Can you believe this? Think about it. Gentleness and speaking truth. We choose to resist blasting others. It's not a synonym for weakness. It's power under control. It's the strong whose strength is under control. It's the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master 
over their, over their hearts, over their lives. It's what the New Testament calls self-control. That's what it means. I mean master in that sense. If you're able to say, don't talk right now. Don't talk right now. You're able to see behind to the heart concern of the person and not light them up or fight back or get defensive. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. That, pr- that, promotes, that promotes unity because you know what? You'll get a chance to, to share your peace, but to pause and to be gentle with other people is an extraordinary act of virtue. And when you practice that, it just, it just has such a beautiful taste in the mouths of the people around you. Let's do that. (laughs) All right. One commentator said this about the pairing between humility and gentleness. The meek thinks little of their personal claims. The humble thinks little of their personal merits. Just a good little tandem there. Patience and long suffering. We all can be humble up to a point. We all can be gentle up to a point. But don't we all have a time stamp, an expiration date on our humility and our gentleness? And then we throw it all down the toilet because finally we're just like, you know what? I'm tired of being, I played nice with you. Now I got to take you to task, right? But this, this idea, it's macrothumia. It's, 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 be, it's having a slow burn and a long fuse. You know what I'm saying? That, like that's the image. I'm not going to blow up. I'm not going to blow up. You know what I've had to rehearse in my mind regularly as a dad? The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. The anger of people does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And I'm like, I am not advancing the kingdom in the lives of the people around me when I'm quick to blow up. And I'm going to tell you, I got an anger problem. Anger management. The only anger management that's left any imprint on me is the gospel. Strategies aren't going to get to the heart thing that makes me want to explode. But you know what does? When I see that God had every reason and right to pour his anger and wrath out on me. But he, he, he spent it on his son so that he could pour out on me his love and grace. Oh, I got to be able to be patient with somebody else in my life. Because whatever infraction they, they committed against me doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the multitude of infractions that I have committed, I currently commit, and I will commit against God. And yet, long suffering. You know what that tells me? Unity cannot be gotten for a cheap price. It's costly. And we see that in Jesus who secured an actual unity. But in the practice of unity, it's going to continue to cost us too. The question is, will we esteem it as valuable as God did? Valuable enough to send his son to die for and rise for. Patience and long suffering is remaining tranquil while awaiting an outcome. It's enduring the wrongs, the imperfections, the failures and the immaturity of others with a view toward participating in their maturity. With a view toward participating in their maturity. I'm going to wait on you. How long is it going to take? It doesn't matter. However long it takes, I'm waiting. That's, that's the disposition of a, a, a community that's heading into greater unity. Bearing with one another in love. Just listen to the language of it. Bearing with one another to carry one another. Sometimes we get agitated with people when we got to carry them. I love the image of that story when Jesus, his friends carried him to Jesus on the mat and dropped him down through the roof. 
Where would we be without our people who are carrying us on the mat to Jesus? You're going to go down at some point, whether through suffering, whether through your own weakness or sin. You're going to go down at some point and you're going to need someone to bear you up. And the beauty of God's community is supposed to be that nobody should be so down and out, considered to be so far gone that they couldn't be carried along by the community of God. That's a beautiful thing. And that's why the family of God is the priority over our micro families in this world. That's what makes sense of the priority of the family of God and our commitment to it. Finally, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I want to mark that word eager. Are you chomping at the bit to foster unity in the church? Or do you sit back and snipe it while in no way you participate in fostering its unity? It's a good check on us, right? But there's a wordplay going on here that's really powerful that, that shows you how deep our commitment to peace should be. This word in the bond of peace, Paul is literally bound in jail. Desmios. And he says, we're to seek the unity of, be eager Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the desmios of peace, in the bonds of peace. Paul says, I'm sitting here constrained, imprisoned as a, as a prisoner on behalf of the Lord. But I want you to be prisoners of peace. I want you to be chained, duty bound to peace. So committed to peace that you would not sacrifice it for any one of your own desires. You wouldn't put peace on the back burner or make it a secondary thing. You would prioritize it. We talk about community all the time. Millennials, you love community, right? Yeah, you bout that life, right? Are you? Because think about the little word that's in that. Community. Unity is in here. And if our community is not built around these, these, these virtues that sustain it, then what we'll have is some shallower version of community. We'll think that we have a thick community, but we really won't have a thick community. A community that can really weather the heavy stuff. So these are the virtues that sustain unity. But look at the truths that explain it. This is in verses four through six, and I'm going to make this brief. All right. Here's the deal. We cannot unify in the abstract. There's no such thing as an abstract unity. We must unify around someone or something. Some principle, some person. We have to have something to unify around. And we'll never, listen to me, we'll never unify under the idea that everyone can just do what they feel. Here's why. Because ultimately what you feel and what I feel will come into conflict with one another. And we need to have some truth that is bigger than both of us. That is more authoritative than both of us. That is more compelling than what either of us initially desires. That brings us together. That corrects both of us. That redirects both of us. That, that really motivates us. We need truths that challenge each of us. Truths that inspire and rewire each of us. Truths that expose each of us in order to clothe each of us in the same garments. Truth that carries authority over you and me. That's what the apostle was laying down here. Do you see this? 
You see this in the text? Check it out. Before, you, before I read this text, I, wanna, I want you to see this in the text. Notice that the three persons of the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each participating in bringing the church to unity. Paul is after the communal image bearing of the church. The commu- we bear the image of the God who is one and three and three and one together. Look at this unity. The father planned for it. The son died for it. The spirit works for it. So we must not be indifferent to it. In fact, we too should plan for it, die for it and work for it. This is the thing. Look at verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Listen, there's been a crisis of authority in American Christianity. There's a crisis of authority. One scholar, uh, Nathan Hatch, who wrote a book called The Democratization of American Christianity. He talks about the sovereign audience. The sovereign audience and people have had so many bad experiences with unhealthy abuses of authority that they no longer have the discernment to recognize healthy, life-giving leadership that is serving out of the authority of scripture. But one of the things that will never, ever, ever allow us to enter into unity is if we are cut off from authority over us. It won't work. It won't work. And that's why we look at this text. There is, there is a body here. That's the body, the one body, not multiple bodies. There's one body of Christ. Each has access to God through one spirit. Paul is just working out of the theology he gave us in chapter two. When he talked about the two becoming one, the Jew and the Gentile, both precious and valuable to God, built into one new humanity, one new creation. There is one hope. You know what that hope is for us? The hope of glory. The hope of glory. And I know you're headed to glory and I'm headed to glory and we have our hopes set on it. And you know what creates disunity? When I have my own hopes and dreams and you have your own hopes and dreams and what I want comes into conflict with what you want and then we start going like that. The one hope is supposed to override our smaller hopes. Look, at, look further in the text. One Lord... And you know what compromises our unity? When we have multiple lords that we serve. When we're serving money and prestige and power, success. This creates disunity. But when there's one Lord, that that fosters unity. One faith. This is an important one. One body of truth that we submit to. The faith once for all delivered over to the saints. And when we start tampering with it. And start adjusting it, it compromises our unity. Paul tells Timothy to guard the good deposit that he gave him. There is a body of truth that is our shared faith, which is why we do the creeds every Sunday. But we must commit there. One baptism. You know what this means? He's speaking to identity. Your baptismal identity. Who are you? You're one who's been cleansed. Who are you? You're one who's been united to Christ. Who are you? You're one who belongs to the family of God. You have been washed and you belong now. One identity. And that's where we have to be careful about our identities. 
Our primary identity is our baptismal identity of belonging to the family of God. There's one baptism. There's one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This all, these alls are about the church. They're in context. It's about the church. One God and father of all. When we act like orphans, disunity. When we act like children and treat one another like children. Right? That's why it's instinctive. You, if you, don't, dis, you don't mistreat other people's children, right? Right? It's just instinctive. You don't mistreat. You don't mistreat other people's children. Well, the person sitting next to you in the pew is a child of God. Don't mistreat his children. They are children. They're your brothers and sisters. How do we move forward in this? Living out of these truths, we must repent and renew our minds. We must repent and renew our minds. Repent of, of taking these oneness statements and living into a different direction. Having many lords and, and many faiths and many different identities that trump our baptismal identity. Our identity in union with Christ. Ultimately, this is one of the most beautiful ways that we can bear witness to the world. Is through our, our unity together as we... Embrace the virtues that sustain our unity. And as we believe the truths that explain it, then people just might want to be a part of this thing. They might find it refreshing to be a part of the church. Let's pray that God will give us the grace to practice, to practice as we lean into his call to unity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.